G'day and welcome to a very, very special episode of Occupied. This episode being proudly brought to you by the WFOT Congress. Today we have the amazing pleasure of being able to bring to you your WFOT president, Samantha Shan, to discuss her journey into the profession, her journey into being involved with the profession at literally the highest possible level, as well as her go-to tips, tricks, experiences, and things you need to know about the upcoming WFOT Congress in France. You guys are going to love this. I absolutely loved having a chat with Samantha uh, and an absolutely phenomenal story about coming into the profession of OT. So enjoy. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. I think I would probably agree with your theory there. Um, So I was doing my A-levels, I live in the UK, and... At that time in the late, late 80s, they were really pushing women to go into science. So I was really exploring chemistry and had places at university to do chemistry. Had a little bit of an inkling about physiotherapy, but nothing really. And then at the same time, I was a young leader, a brownie girl guide pack. Okay. And there was a brownie that joined that had Down syndrome. And we had an occupational therapist come to one of our brownie meetings to talk to us about how to help this brownie integrate how we might need to adapt some of the things that we did but generally just to you know talk to us and and show us how to enable her to be part of the brownie pack and it was suddenly like this oh wow and that was probably it it was but Certainly not the end of the journey. It was. It got me thinking. I applied and obviously got a place at um, university. But it wasn't an easy journey. So although occupational therapy found me, I will probably be very honest and sort of say I struggled throughout my three years of my OT course. Um, not because I wasn't having a fantastic time. I made some wonderful friends that are friends now. And... And I enjoyed the course and I was stretched by my lecturers and made to think differently. Um, I was the last year of what was the diploma in the UK. So there was lots of art-based things. Monday morning was in the crafts room, photography, pottery, arts work. It was, it was, it was a really, really good course. It was nothing there, but equally in the late 80s, it was that sort of time of when theory was probably starting to come in a little bit more yep so moho was starting to appear and there was theories and models starting to be talked about and then also where occupational therapy was positioned in the UK at the time very much discharge focused hospital based so there was this real sort of thing for me of like what I was hearing and learning at university and then what I was seeing in practice and 
somehow they just didn't meet I couldn't I couldn't see where they were meeting at all yeah and I had a wonderful program lead Margaret Robinson who's been with me throughout all my career actually and you know I spent many hours in her office and you know she would say well if there's something else Sam I was like no no I'm enjoying it but I just don't see where this all fits together can't put the big Um, picture together yeah just just nothing nothing matched it was yeah so anyway I stuck with it I, I stayed stayed with the course um and then again in my first job because because we were the late eight well we were early 90s by that point it was still very medical model very mm. um discharge equipment processed getting people home from hospital and again that just didn't match with with everything that I was learning about sort of like choice about participation um, enabling people and actually what we were what we were discharging people home to um, and I also then at the same time was working in quite a rural community in the north of England and moved to um, a ro- I was on a rotation post so moved into mental health and it was a community mental health but we would spend ages waiting for patients to arrive and these patients and clients would like have to drive like hours on country roads to come to occupational therapy or come to anything yeah and and I can remember sitting there thinking no this is not right and um, therefore probably then started challenging that thing I've probably been qualified about sort of six seven months at that point and thought okay if this is going to work for me I need to make some changes um so very adamantly decided that we were going to have a community group out in the middle of nowhere that's awesome and so it's kind it of like the, like an outreach kind of position yeah uh-huh. yeah and it was really hard to justify it to start with because it was like oh so you're going to spend four hours in the car for an hour's group with five clients and I'm like yeah like, well what do you justify that one because we can look back over their records and those five clients have maybe attended once or twice in the last six months. And I've sat around waiting for them. Mm. And, you know, in all honesty, when you're sat waiting for clients to arrive, you, you might do a little bit of work, but you're not, you're not fully engrossed in anything else. So yeah, we, we set up this outreach group and it was my first time of thinking, actually, this is, this is more about what I learned. This is more about what I thought at the time occupational therapy was about. It was about engaging with people, listening to them and trying to um, help them solve their problems as much as anything. Um, So that was that. But equally at the same time, I'd reapplied to go back to university and was going to go back and do chemistry. (laughs) That's all right. You're just hedging your bets just in case. Yeah, just edging my bets, thinking, okay, yeah. Um, Got a place, but decided, no, I'll just give it one last shot and reapplied for another job. And that was in mental health. And it was, again, it was early 90s, getting into mid 90s, but it was probably one of the last big occupational therapy departments around. Was it like a kid? We had lots of technical instructors, pottery um computers um woodwork the gym 
and you know it was the, the technical technical instructors were absolutely fantastic in that department and it was it was a breath of fresh air really I got some excellent supervision um again was allowed to develop things um we set up some work with GP series and out of hours work which again was you know we talk about that now as like you know just common practice well, yeah that's, that's what we do yeah but back, back then it was really sort of quite groundbreaking to be talking with um, the GPs and and giving people opportunity to attend sessions outside of their working hours um and that was really really engaging um so and I think that was probably at the point where I thought okay yeah I can I can stay I, I am an occupational therapist I, I, I that's where I started to feel it um but at the same time personally I'd been doing a lot of traveling loved travel loved that whole sort of thing but again felt that I wanted to spend a bit more time outside of the UK and um I worked in the States for a little bit not not as an occupational therapist as an an activity coordinator on a a camp for children with disabilities um, I know a couple of people from the UK that have done that in the States. It seems to be like a yeah. a popular thing. Yeah, well, the, during university, there's the whole Camp America sort of thing. So you can go and do it for, sort of for a few weeks. And, I'm, and I did it I did it a bit more permanent than that. Um, and, and it was interesting because probably that was the first time that my job title wasn't occupational therapist. Mm. But actually, it was probably the time where I use my occupational therapy skills the most yeah yep. It, even now it was you know there was nobody else prompting me there was nobody else there it was you know every day you were that um, camp coordinator for children with with very severe disabilities as it turned out the brief wasn't quite what it was um, given. <laughs> they didn't want to scare you off before you got there yeah <laughs> as is often the case with those sort of things yeah but yeah and that 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 sort of I think it showed me the different cultures as well and you know we sometimes think you know the UK the US lots of similarities I would probably say there's more differences than similarities really and certainly within the health systems um, and where occupational therapy sits and and how people access services just drastically different yeah, I think yeah. through this podcast, speaking with quite a few Americans and people who've worked in the American system, it's it's well, it's definitely drastically different to Australia. I think Australia is probably more similar to the UK than than the states is. It's it's definitely a very unique yeah. system um, that I still haven't quite got my head around. I, I've never worked there, no, but no. I'm not sure how I'd go. I'd probably struggle a bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even silly things like language. I mean, I was working with children and like every day they would sort of say to me, speak to me in your own language. I'm going, I am, I'm speaking English. Where do you think the language came from? Yeah. <laughs> you want me to say? Um, but it, it was, it was that real sort of like um, awakening, I guess, on that sort of like cultural thing. Because although we learn about culture, within the occupational therapy program and whilst I that initial job that I worked in was a real culture shock for me I've always lived in towns and cities and then my first job qualified was in a rural Mm. farming community so there were cultural differences and you know I'm from 
West Yorkshire and that first job was in North Yorkshire and they always called me Southerner, despite the fact there was probably 30 minutes between where we came from. Yeah. So it wasn't that I'd been hidden from culture, but the sort of cultures that you understand a little bit more and we, we don't, certainly at that time in the North of England, we didn't have masses of sort of like um, people from other countries. It sort of like was quite close sort of like part of the uk at the time yeah 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 so I, that's that gave me the thing and then i was interested in going to india but the project that i was going to india didn't work out for lots of reasons and got an opportunity to go to uganda okay um, in the late 90s i did see that uh i think it's on the the wfot website that you're the liaison for africa as well and i was wondering about how that came about and then i saw that you've got a couple of publications relating to practices in in Africa. Is that where that sort of interest in that part of the world came from? Yes, yes. There's two bits with that. Within WFOT, the executive have um, responsibilities for regions just to try to make sure that we keep on top of things. There's so much to do. Um, but, yeah, my... my um, involvement in occupational therapy in Africa started from Uganda so I I originally went for a year and stayed just um the short five years um and that was at the time the occupational therapy program was just establishing um and the first graduates were just going out to set up occupational therapy services so Uganda had a history um, of back in the 60s and 70s they'd sent occupational therapists to the US and the UK to do okay. their to occupational train. therapy education yep. some of them did return but as we see time and time again when people leave very often they don't come back and that, yep. that in itself was a, a valuable lesson for me and probably my real passion when I get round to WFOT is, you know, helping countries to establish their education programme. Not only does that make sure that it's culturally appropriate for where those occupational therapies need to work and to meet population mm. needs, but hopefully we're going to keep people the retention. there yeah. as well. And that's, that's not sort of like trapping people. That's like looking at like where, 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 where the need is. Really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, how, so how, yeah, happened. So what was the what was the project in Uganda? Was it a like a, a university style project, or was it just a like a work project, or what was your why were you there? It was with a very small UK charity at the time, um, but part of my remit for that first twelve months was to get my position established within the Ministry of Health. As it turned out during that first 12 months, the occupational therapy training school in Kampala got moved to education. I ended up becoming the first occupational therapist in Uganda to be employed by the Ministry of Education. Okay. And that was quite a quite an achievement to actually yeah. get as established into that. Um, so my remit was teaching on the new program and also helping um the new graduates to set up services particularly in mental health because that's where my skills were at that point so did you so you said like when you first came out of uni and then you sort of moved into mental health did you kind of stay there like would you say that mental health was your 
I don't know, most people sort of find their sort of passion area. Would you say mental health was yours or did you sort of chop and change a bit or where did you find yourself? Chopped and changed in that first job, did sort of like stroke rehab, orthopedic surgery. Um, but yes, predominantly sort of like mental health. Yeah. And would say still, although with sort of like a lot of my international work and sort of stuff that I do, Although it's mental health, my other real sort of like feeling is community-based practice okay. and um, community-based rehabilitation. So like the specific uh, modalities or like community development? Community development and yep. sort of like really um, was very much through some WFOT work as well and also some of the work that was doing in Uganda, very involved in um, the World Health Organization and their CBR guidelines. And that's where my real sort of like passion is around that community development and real grassroots community-based rehabilitation. So really taking WHO's definition of that and, you know, everything coming from the community and then having those sort of decision-making sort of like skills behind that, yeah. This is something that's kind of always interests me when like you find people like yourself in in the positions that you're in obviously you're the president of WFOT now uh and I I, I talk to a lot of people and they're like oh, it's almost like there's a gap of like there're those people and then there's us but in talking with you know people like yourself and hearing your story it's very much like a story that anyone could sort of go through in terms of therapy and progression but how how did you get first get involved? Because obviously you've been involved with WFOT for quite a while now in other positions. How did you first sort of get involved with the World Federation? I think literally my first week in Uganda, I um, attended my first Ugandan Association meeting, and um, there was about five of us in the room, and um, suddenly found myself the treasurer of the Ugandan Association. <laughs> I don't think I'd even properly unpacked my suitcase. But then there I was as treasurer of um, the Ugandan Association. Um, and one of the first tasks within that was um, helping write the, the Code of Ethics okay. um, because Uganda at the time um, was working towards WFOT membership. And I will be perfectly honest, um, I had not really heard about the World Federation of Occupational Therapists up until that point. Yep. Um, it was not something I'd been taught on my programme. Mm. I'd, I'd always been a member of the British Association, the Royal College of OT, but never really thought about WFOT. Um, so, yeah, helped write the constitution. And that, that year, um, Uganda became a full member of WFOT. And it was also at that point where discussions and the formation of OTAG, the Occupational Therapy Africa Regional Group, was forming. Okay. And in 1999, we had the first OTAG Congress in Mauritius. And the WFOT executive held their executive meeting at the same time. So that was my first contact you know, in person with WFOT and meeting the executive. Yep. With OTARG, again, was very involved in helping to write the constitution. Um, that first Congress did the scientific programme with the Ugandan occupational therapists. Um, 
and became very involved in OTARG. The second OTARG Congress was in Kampala in 2001. Um, at that point, I was the president of the Ugandan Association. And it was probably that time when we really saw the Ugandan Association really coming together. I think it gave us as an association a real focus to be able to host and bring these occupational therapists, not just from Africa. We have many delegates from Europe and the States come to that Congress in yep. Kampala. And I think, you know, it was it was a very special time to be part of occupational therapy in Uganda as that professional identity started to really embed. People were getting employed in the Ministry of Health. There were positions opening up and then they were presenting about their work at international congresses and starting to talk and network with occupational therapists across the Africa region predominantly but those links really starting to establish and and also people starting to question as well of like okay well yeah this is great but actually how do we want to develop occupational therapy in mm. Uganda moving forward what is a standardized assessment in rural Uganda um what sort of outcome measures do we want to do and it was it was some um, yeah, very exciting to be part of those discussions and and see see the graduates developing the confidence to start questioning their own practice really yeah. and push those boundaries that little bit further. Still trying to get graduates to do that. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so one thing I've, I've I don't know a whole lot about the development of the profession uh, in other African countries, but was. So you you were obviously very involved in the development in Uganda. Was the development of the profession in other African countries sort of around the same stage or were there other countries that were sort of already established and Uganda was catching up or like how was it developing sort of, I guess, in the rest of the continent? Yeah, there's always been a big difference. I mean, South Africa was one of the founding members of the World Federation of Occupational Therapists. So mm. Occupational therapy in South Africa, I, I won't even guess what date that started. Yeah, it's yeah. got a long, it's long well established. Day. It was certainly around in 1952 when WFOT was established. Yep. Um, so if you take sort of like South Africa out as sort of quite different, I think then actually your next pocket of development was East Africa. So um, Kenya they started with occupational therapy in the 1960s so a very colonial yeah. sort of health system obviously in our, in Kenya with that history um and yeah that they they this long and then Uganda and Tanzania started very quickly together sort of those late 80s early 90s um Zimbabwe has a long long history Yep. As well, they're one of the other um, um, associations. Um, West Africa, um, quite interestingly, as I came back from Uganda to the UK, I got a teaching post in the UK, and one of the students on the program was from Ghana, and he'd been um, got funding from his government to come, to come and do over his and do occupational his therapy education. Yeah. 
and it was at the university that I was teaching at so um, Peter and I developed a relationship and supported that and that was sort of like the start. Occupational therapy has been around in Nigeria for many many years they don't have WFOT approved education programs and many of their education programs um, still are assistant level or at diploma level um, and there's lots of work still going on there in Nigeria. Mm. So Ghana was the first WFOT approved um, degree program in West Africa. Okay. Um, and then yeah, then Zambia, Malawi. So it's been pockets. So I think really the most development has probably been in the last 20 years across that African region. Yep. Yeah. So you, you spent, I think you said just under five years uh, mm-hmm. over there and then you went back to the UK. Where did you go? You went back into a teaching position. Yeah. Didn't didn't really expect it. That was never probably part of the plan. It seems to be the pattern um, here. You just all these opportunities yeah. present and you're not expecting them. I like it. I do. And, and it's funny like you say about occupational therapy finding you. When I talk to students and whatever, I, I, I talk to I talk about my um career pathway a little bit like the London tube map. Yep. You know, when I first started out, people say, oh, you know, you'll have a career and you'll go up the career ladder. Well, that's either not happened or that I don't think that actually exists anymore. <laughs> so I sort of see my career is that I sort of get on this train and I've made a decision to get on the train, but then I'll go. And sometimes I'm going along because I'm quite happy on that train. Although sometimes I get to a station and I'm given some other choices and I might decide to get off for a bit or I might decide to stay on. Um, sometimes I find myself coming back in a full loop. <laughs> Um, get on a different train you know, with various things but it's that sort of like thing of like always keeping moving forward there's always something and sometimes you sometimes you make a very conscious decision mm. to to make a change in your career and other times opportunities arrive and you think actually yes that's worth trying um and I yeah I I, I guess I'm I'm always open to opportunities and I like to try new things. So I, I'd, I'd literally come back from Uganda just for a couple of weeks holiday and went to see my old programme leader. Um, as I say, she, she'd been very helpful whilst I was in Uganda, sending lots of resources. Um, it wasn't really the end of an email or the phone. It was lots of letters that she would send still. Yep. Um, and sat in her office and I'd actually come back to discuss about doing my master's and thinking about what to do it and then during that course of the conversation it was like um we've got an opening at the moment um do you want to be interviewed next week <laughs> it's like um okay sure why so not? I, I returned yeah I returned to Uganda with a new job which which was hard it was hard telling people yeah. um I was leaving it was hard sort of like leaving because I hadn't really thought about it lots of things had happened personally but my heart was very much in Uganda at that point very much part of my local community part of the local school um but at the same time this job opportunity felt right yeah Um, yeah. and it felt right and I and I knew that there were people in Uganda 
that were already doing what I was doing and that they could take it forward. You know, it wasn't that I was walking away and nothing was there. There were Ugandan occupational therapists working in the occupational therapy education program. There were very well-established occupational therapy departments at that point. The association was strong they were a strong member of wfot a strong member of otag so i i knew that they had the skills to do that i think that a lot of um we had a lot of conversations about that and and i guess then that's when i realized that you know how you support people and how you enable people doesn't have to be from the same room or the same country and then at that point I was sort of like so and, and an internet wasn't great at that point we no. were still spending a lot of time in Uganda in internet cafes yeah. um, <laughs> and not being able to download anything so we had to talk through how that continued support would happen yeah and I was very lucky when I came back to the UK that I was able to go back to Uganda quite regularly okay. in person and continue some sort of like development workshops through OTAG as well and um, so yeah, that it was at that point there. But meeting Peter when I came back to the UK then got involved involved me in Ghana and yep. West Africa. Um, so Peter Nadir, Dr. Peter Nadir now has gone on and helped stab, well establish the first occupational therapy education program in Ghana. And um, I think I was the first external examiner for that program. And again, I've had the real pleasure to watch the first number of cohorts. I think we're up to six cohorts now in Ghana graduating and really see them come through, seeing them um, take hold of the Ghanaian Occupational Therapy Association and, and again, help form their own professional identity. And I think that's one of the things I talked earlier about um, education programs and then yep. being established in country has been so important about the legacy of the profession and I, I strongly believe that is to get a, a strong education program within the country gives that country a really good grounding for developing occupational therapy and the sustainability of the profession um, because there has to be ownership from the government around that education yeah, yeah, yeah. program but for professional identity and for the real development of the profession, it's national associations that really do that from, from what I've seen, witnessed and been part of. That belonging to an association, being able to come together, having a shared vision of what you want, um, being able to impact. And equally, through having a a recognised association, it gets people different invites to mm. government things, so it's easier to get to the tables and the meetings where you need to be having those discussions. Um, so yes, I've, I've um, yeah, and the Ghan- the Ghanaian Occupational Therapy Association now, you know, they're running regular webinars, they're doing conferences they're talking at other people's events they're out there and um yeah again have developed occupational therapy as it needs to be in ghana not without its challenges oh no i can imagine yeah so when you when you came back to the uk did you 
like continue with your involvement with WFOT directly then, or was it something you sort of came back to after a bit? No, again, a, a, probably another lucky break. <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> yeah, um, the UK position for the WFOT delegate, so the okay. Royal College of Occupational Therapists, um, their delegate position was for election. Um, I say lucky because I think for the first time in history, there was five of us that applied for it. And it was suddenly like this big sort of like election thing. Um, but yeah, I, I got elected. Thank you to the members. Um, I think Sheila Richards, who was the chief executive at the time, she, she told me like she had a little bit of a heart attack because she saw that I was living in Uganda as I applied and there was nothing in their um, articles at that point about travel. And she was thinking, do we have to pay for it to come from Uganda? I think that probably got changed quite quickly somewhere in the articles. Yeah, yeah. Small freak out just immediately. Yeah. So, no, I was I was lucky. And, um, yeah, so spent four years as the UK delegate to WFOT. But in that time, so halfway through that position, I got elected onto the executive management team. So within WFOT, there are sort of like the main executive positions, as we would see in most organisations mm-hmm. of the president, vice president, um, Treasurer, vice president of finance, and yep. the executive director. But then what, what we also have is the program coordinators okay to and they are part of the exec the bigger executive management team so they're part of um decision making they're part of all of that but maybe not quite so much responsibility um i think when they were first brought in it was sort of like that bit of a stepping stone it was tried to like look at how you structure because it's quite a big going from being a, a country delegate yeah. to then sort of being on the executive so I got elected in oh, I can't remember what year it was now um but yeah to international co- cooperation international cooperation and um and I think again that that fed into my skills that been developing over the last sort of like six years around sort of like developing occupational therapy in countries where the profession was still relatively new Um, and through that um, started to have a lot more contact with occupational therapists that were in similar positions to what I'd been in in Uganda. So like in sort of developing areas or countries trying to get it sort of off the ground? Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really helped me over the years is actually having lived through that as well. So, you yeah. know, I can still remember, you know, spending days sat in government corridors just waiting to speak to somebody. <laughs> Um, so like when I go to the countries now and people say oh well, you know we're going to go and have this meeting with whoever the meeting's at 10 o'clock but it it could be whenever it's like that's fine yeah absolutely fine and you know that 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 sort of understanding and recognizing and you know when when I start to think about it you know although it's sort of like 20 odd years back those those years in Uganda and working with my Ugandan colleagues 
were were really where I I really feel I became an occupational therapist. Yeah. I, I I learned so much from my Ugandan colleagues in those years that I still use on a day-to-day basis. Do you, do you ever feel, because I, I wonder this probably more on a smaller scale with some of the people that I've spoken to, but do you ever wonder whether or do you ever feel like you're, because obviously it sounds like you've always been kind of, for lack of a better term, like a natural-born leader of sorts, but do you ever feel like you've ever sort of flick the switch from being that on the ground lead by example clinician to now looking at it sort of from the uh, policy national association international association level do you ever feel like there was like a time when you just made that switch or is it still sort of the same skill set I guess it's interesting because I would never sort of like put myself as a natural born leader I don't often think of myself as a leader in that sort of term. Um, I did a course actually about and about sort of leadership so long back. And, and one of the things that we spent a lot of time discussing, it was an interesting concept, was about sort of like where you spend your time as a leader. Is it on the dance floor and dancing for want of a better word and integrating and doing? Yeah. Or do you spend your time on the balcony? watching and observing making your changes and making those decisions of where your time is best spent and it was really quite eye-opening for me because I think you're right I I am very much an activist Mm. it's probably my um it's my real strength I think but probably equally why I haven't gone into um sort of more research because I'm I will do something but then the thought of writing it up just yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm on to the next thing. I can understand yeah. that. <laughs> and I think we all have different skills, and I, oh, yeah. I absolutely admire and I'm in awe of people that can sit and do different things. Um, I think my policy change probably came in because equally when I was the delegate to the UK, so when I was on the board of the Royal College of Occupational Therapists, I was also for two years the vice chair of council. So at that point, got more into policy and some of the corporate things within the Royal College that you see. So you start to see that. And then equally, um, coming on the WFOT executive um, and the involvement at um, the World Health Organization and the policy levels in there. And again, what we've seen in the last sort of like 15 years within the World Health Organization is a shift in how they focus on disability, a shift in their focus on rehabilitation, so much more involvement in policy levels there. I think also that that understanding and the more that you speak with governments, the more that you um, interact with them is sort of understanding where they have to come from sometimes Mm. as well and where those policies are really important to them and establishing sort of like that more formal part of the profession yeah. as well. But, but I think I'm, I'm still much ado. I'm, I'm still an occupational therapist. I still practice as an occupational therapist um, day to day. Um, so, yeah. Because you, you, you have a, a private practice now. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you find or have you found taking on literally probably some would say the biggest role in OT in the world has that 
had an impact on your ability to do what you want within that practice or is it sort of like while you're in this president position have you sort of had to put that on hold or how have you managed to to balance I guess keeping your foot in the door in that clinical sense as well as uh, I guess leading from the top down as well yeah well I guess this is probably a nice time I don't know if I can do shout outs but to thank yeah, Adam and Kate it. my fellow directors because honestly without Adam and Kate no I couldn't I couldn't do both um so very lucky that within the OT service there's actually now four of us um as Lucy's just joined us but as directors there's three of us and Adam and Kate are extremely supportive of my WFOT work I guess it's been woven into our business plan and our business expectations over a number of years whilst this role is an opportunity um so yes I I I don't work full time into, into the, the practice and whilst I'm on this role. Yep. But I think that equally raises other challenges yeah. as well about equity. Um, you know, the World Federation of Occupational Therapists, in my eyes, is a fantastic organisation and does so much work. Um, probably does an awful lot more than what people know because yeah. one of the things we're not so good about is is telling all the minute details but we are a volunteer we're a volunteer organization you need to start um, a podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you sometimes think okay occupational balance what's that again yeah <laughs> but um never heard of it yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. um but yeah so we have some we have an operational management team and we have some paid support and some occupational therapists within that but we're talking you know small hours the executive director has a small secondment but again does much more volunteer hours the WFOT the president and all the other positions are volunteer positions which you know is very much what I know other organizations are like Mm. but we don't have the office we don't have the backup staff like yeah yeah the support staff and admin staff and, and i think people sometimes assume that we do i think people sometimes assume that we're the size of um ot australia or well, OTA. That, i think that may be why because like i know ota has an office and like they have admin staff i've done i've done a fair bit of work with them over the over the years and i think most people just kind of assume that, well, WFOT is the next level up, so it must be sort of this but even bigger kind of thing. Yeah, and, and we're not. Um, it is volunteers. And as I say, that, I think that, that for me that there is a challenge within that. Mm. I'm very lucky that my business partners and my colleagues support me, mm. and I'm very lucky then that I can put many hours into WFOT and and I do that because I I enjoy it as well I get an awful lot out of the work that I do I enjoy meeting with people I enjoy um, mentoring sort of like our new leaders coming through the profession I enjoy helping establish those associations absolutely I enjoy it but the amount of hours that I put in is not necessarily what future volunteers yeah. can put in yeah there is a real challenge there about how can we get wfot to the point that it is a realistic volunteer position for people 
Yeah, more of a, a sustainable model, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it, it always comes back down to that wonderful word of finances. And um, they're that's, always. Um, unfortunately, that seems to be what runs the world nowadays. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so one. And as a federation, we're very dependent on our member organizations, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, even uh, one thing that, speaking about like the American situation, I, one thing I've noticed with them is just the differences in how membership works in different countries. I don't, it's probably not so much a WFOT thing, but more an individual country thing. But I know like with Australia, when I'm a member of OTA, it comes with like automatic membership to WFOT. Whereas in the States, if you want membership to WFOT, you have to get that separately. Um, is, is that, I guess, which one's the more common model, would you say sort of around the world? Cause I, I can't, Obviously, like you were saying before, and I want to get into this a little bit in a sec, but people don't really fully understand, I don't think, the amount of stuff that WFOT does for the profession. So I wonder, like, you know, OTA, I guess it's almost you're supporting OTA, therefore you're supporting WFOT, but if you're not sure what WFOT does for you and it's sort of, a, I guess, a, an extra step that you need to go to, I would imagine that there would that's a pretty big barrier for people to actually join WFOT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's two um, membership models within WFOT. Um, there is what we call the premium pricing model, which is what OT Australia has um, signed up to. And a quarter of our member organisations have now signed up to that. Okay. We brought that back in in 2008, um, just as I became Vice President Finance. Um, and that is very much like you've said, is that the member organisation, so OT Australia, um, the Swedish Association was the first one to sign up. They pay a block amount of money um, a number of dollars per, per member. Yep. And then all their members are members of WFOT as well. Yep. Um, the traditional way that had always happened prior to us bringing in the premium pricing, and we had to bring the premium pricing in as a separate model because some member organisations were not so sure about it. Yeah. So we kept the old model where people have to be a member of their national association, but then can do an add-on um, of okay. that but yes it does it does mean that they have to make an active decision i think the other thing around that is then wfot is very reliant on its member organizations mm. promoting wfot for us and yep. making that easy for people to join i think it's also about people's understanding i think sometimes people say oh well i'm not a member of wfot because i don't want to go and work overseas yeah it's like well, actually, that's not really why you need to be a member of WFOT. Yeah. You need to be a member of WFOT to support your profession. And there are sort of, and people say, well, what do I get for my membership? Well, there are a few membership benefits. There's things like the WFOT bulletin. There's reduced Congress registration fees. But I always sort of say is, it's not about an external thing, mm. membership to WFOT. It's I try to think it about a little bit more internally, of that it's your opportunity to support, support your profession and enable WFOT to represent occupational therapy 
at very high level stakeholder meetings. So WFOT has a collaborative partnership with WHO, the World okay. Health Organization. We've been in official collaborations for just over 50 years, one of only eight health professions to have such a long relationship. And that's not an easy relationship. We have to mm -hmm. do a collaboration plan every two, three years um, and show how we're working together. But it's that representation at that high level meeting that gets occupational therapy recognised. If occupational therapy isn't at WHO meetings, mm. we don't appear in WHO documents. It's about then how it trickles down into regional policies, regional documents, regional workforces, then from regions down into countries and localities. So WFOT membership is not the same as your membership to your national association. Say, one, even if you're opting in, you're paying 25 US dollars. Mm. That's not, it's not, you know, yeah. you're not going to get things coming to you but it is about how you support your profession um and feeling part it does then give you that access to occupational therapists around the world as well and yeah, those yeah. network opportunities um but i think it's more about how we envision being part of the profession how we can influence um health and well-being around the world really i think that's always been the biggest thing for me it's obviously with my ot australia membership it's it's included in that but it's always been promoted uh in australia to be uh, more of i think speaking with our uh, president a few years ago like she described it as it's an investment in the profession as opposed to yeah. like when you sign up to your local one you know you get your discounts on cpd like that's more of an investment in your uh learning and whatnot whereas the wfot is an investment in the profession and like you said it allows uh the the organization to represent and, and which amazes me because i speak to so many ot's around the world nowadays through this podcast and just through networking in general and one of the the biggest complaints that people have about the profession is that it's not marketed or it's not uh you know promoted and we need more people in these positions of policy making and I'm like we've got the people we need to support the people <laughs> it's we we have these mechanisms already in place we just we we need to support well in this case WFOT in order to 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 make that happen more often or sustain that that representation because without it like ot i i could see especially with now that say who you know everyone can recognize that models like the icd are fairly sort of representative of what we think of health with regards to ot but without us sort of having a seat at that table I could very easily see other professions sort of just seeping in and OT fading into the background quite easily. Um, and, and and having that full spectrum as well, you know, sometimes, you know, that, you know, the, the big push at the moment within WHO is Rehabilitation 2030 and the member states of the World Health Organization signing up to, you know, developing rehabilitation services by 2030 which actually feels very close now yeah you know for occupational therapists that's a bit mind-blowing you think what we're only just focusing on rehabilitation 
It's, uh, and it's that recognition of, you know, well, where does occupational therapy play its role in rehabilitation, you know, and, and really putting forward that there is no rehabilitation without occupational therapists. Yeah. But equally being very, very realistic. And that's where the policies, that's where the politics come in, that's where the negotiation skills come in, and that's where it's really important that WOT has this collaboration with the World Health Organization because whilst we can say that occupational therapy is key in rehabilitation, we have to be also very aware that in many countries there are so few occupational therapists that that there's not enough to go around to set up rehabilitation services we want. So finding that match between you know, where we see ourselves hopefully in sort of 10, 20, 50, 60 years and making sure part of occupational therapy, that occupational therapy is part of that vision and plan so that as rehabilitation services are developed is making sure that occupational therapy is developed along with that. That's really important because we can't, we can't raise people's expectations, but equally we can't afford for occupational therapy not to be part of the conversations because we don't quite have the workforce yet yeah definitely so one of the big things i think that everyone would recognize wfa uh, the <laughs> Wofford for <laughs> is the congress it's yeah you easily would say it's probably the the largest ot related event uh, every time that it's on, it's it's massive. When was your sort of, I guess, introduction to the the Congress? When did you first go, and what was it that uh, drew you to such a massive event? Um, my first WFOT Congress was in two thousand and two in Stockholm, in Sweden, um, and just become the UK delegate, um, and but equally had just left Uganda. So had loads of um, Ugandan occupational therapists come over. We'd worked hard to get them to get their papers accepted. So for me, I think I'd left Uganda a few weeks before and then suddenly was with all my friends and colleagues again. (laughs) (laughs) So it was was absolutely fantastic. It's like a reunion. Um, Yeah, it was. I spent sort of like a week in Stockholm with my um, colleagues from Kenya and Uganda. Um, And and that's really interesting because that's... 2002 was the last time WFOT Congress was in Europe. So it's 20 okay. years because we we moved the Congress around. Yep. Um, we recognise it's not easy for people to get to all of the time, for travel, for expenses, for lots and lots of different reasons. But one of the reasons then is therefore we move it around the world yep. to try and make it a little bit more accessible and in those last 20 years you know we've had the first one in latin america we went to chile in 2010 and the last one was in south africa the first wot congress on the african continent so really you know trying to make it as easy and accessible as it can be and i think part of that is then recognizing that we have the grants program for the congress so um helping to support occupational therapists from low and middle income countries to present at the WFOT Congress. And anybody can donate 
to that Congress. So even if you can't actually come to the WFOT Congress, whether virtually this time, because this will be the first time that we're going to have virtual attendance as well, but you can still be part of the Congress and you can still um, enable that by helping to support maybe somebody else. Just even a small donation makes quite a difference. So what is it, I guess, what would you say would be the biggest draw card of a WFOT Congress compared to, say, a national conference that someone might have in their own country? Like, what would be the the big difference? Diversity. Um, That real opportunity to meet occupational therapists from around the world, um, to learn about occupational therapy, practice, research and education, um, in the different global context but I think for me it's beyond that cultural diversity as well the bit that I really really enjoy about WFOT congresses is the diversity and the presentations um, so you can have very well renowned occupational therapists presenting and then the next presenter can be a new graduate who's presenting their groundbreaking work with a new community or a new practice in their country. And I think that real um, real difference in experiences, not just in the experiences of like the cultural country context, but that different lens of like being a new graduate coming into the profession yep. to having some really experienced things. And then the rest of us in the middle where we're, yeah, we've got some experience still developing it, still learning it. And I think for me, that that's where the real strength and the real beauty, not just of WFOT Congress, but WFOT lies, is like really bringing the profession together on all those different levels. Because I think uh, I see, and even from my personal experience, I feel like people operating sort of in their little silo or like their country, their health system, you kind of very much get just... I guess, stuck with the status quo of that. And as much as you might be trying to learn and diversify your knowledge and and that kind of thing, it's hard when you're still in that system. And I think one of the benefits I could see of a WFOT Congress is, like we've already explored today, like the difference in health systems around the world, like how the, the profession started differently and how it operates differently in different countries. And being able to be exposed to that and to network with people in from you know all over the world, I would imagine would just be the most. I, I could already foresee myself just being utterly exhausted at the end of it, just from trying to like soak in all the information. It is. It's, it's absolutely exhausting. It's absolutely <laughs> mind blowing. Yeah, and it's that. Yeah, it's it's opening your eyes and opening your ears and actually, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, an occupational therapist working in rural Kenya? What does it mean working as an occupational therapist in the city centre of Singapore? I mean, the, the, the differences are vast, but equally with every sort of presentation, there's always something that you can pull out because we're occupational therapists and there's always this deep rich conversations of sharing ideas and sharing practices and developing links and I think you know I've had the real privilege to be able to go to a number of WFOT congresses now but seeing people make connections and watching those connections grow 
you know, I, I've seen people connect and then come back to the next WFOT Congress doing joint papers together because mm. they've gone on and developed this working relationship that, you know, developed over coffee at a WFOT Congress. And um, I think it's really interesting because with the last two years in the pandemic and virtual and things have become a little bit more accessible and we, we, We've had that opportunity to connect in different ways, which I know has got us through the pandemic. Mm. Um, But there's such a different richness in having that conversation with somebody because it's that conversation. It's an occupational therapy conversation, isn't it? It starts maybe around that presentation that you both heard and Mm. what that made you think about your own practice. But then it goes on and you, you learn about people's lives and you learn about their stories and you can make those connections. And, and for me, that's what occupational therapy is about. It's about learning about people's stories and, and engaging in those stories and developing those stories together. And I think those face to face connections, um, are where those real relationships really develop. I was talking to somebody yesterday who I've met via Zoom a number of times over the last couple of years, and we've, we've developed a good working relationship. Can't wait to just meet them yeah. and just have that that conversation. And well, know, just I think that's something that a lot really of people good. have experienced. Like you said, like during the pandemic, you know, like this Zoom became the thing, uh, and it, it was a way, like you said, to to get us. And I know a lot of people uh, pivoted to telehealth and that kind of stuff, but I've still never met anyone that considers telehealth to be a complete and total package replacement of face-to-face therapy. And I think it's the same for for these kinds of events. Like even before pandemic, uh, like even some of the CPD stuff I used to do through OT Australia, like I could do a webinar, but I never got as much out of it as I would sort of an in-person training. Uh, and I, like I've been to quite a number of conferences, state and national conferences here, and I, I just can't even imagine the the richness of the the learning and the connection that I usually get from those events being available. Obviously, the the direct knowledge from the presentations and stuff you can probably get over a virtual uh, platform, but for me. Personally, the the value from conferences was always sort of those conversations in between sessions and the people that you meet and the people that you run into or you go out for dinner after after the the day's conference and and converse and have those OT really rich, deep conversations with people that you've, like you said, either met online because I've done this a number of times now and then finally met in person or people you've just met, you know, during the day. Uh, And and that to me was always where I got the most value out of any of those kinds of events. So I I could definitely think that, yeah, you could do the the online version. And it's great that that's an option, especially obviously with everything that's going on in the world today, it it does make that aspect of it more accessible. But I I could imagine that just the rich, richness of the experience of being there in person would be exponentially more valuable to a lot of people 
Yeah, yes, the online version's there and I I agree with you. It's great to be able to look back on things and do that learning and that real sort of like professional sort of like development stuff, Mm. but that richness of the connections and and never quite knowing which connections are going to lead to something else. And and even the small connections, you know, you you always remember those conversations as you're going up an escalator or, you know, finding a seat in an auditorium and just hearing you know somebody's story it's Mm. just it's just wonderful and I think you know this year as well we're going to be in Paris and you know we were talking about the differences of occupational therapy around the world and sometimes we can make real assumptions and Mm. you know we can look at France and you know a power strength within Europe and a really strong history a very strong sort of French history but the development of occupational therapy or ergotherapy in France is really something we need to be learning about. It's very, very different to um, lots of European countries, lots of other countries. They've got very different struggles to other places. They're making great achievements in different areas. Um, So, you know, there's the beauty of Paris itself and that excitement of being in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, which I think, you know, we would all enjoy being, enjoying that but really starting to understand what occupational therapy is in in France and and seeing what they're doing, I think is a great opportunity as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't, uh, unlike, I don't know why, and maybe because it's sort of a a long-established sort of group of countries in that area of the world, but like earlier, I'm very aware that African countries are very different and very unique to themselves, and I think a lot of people just group European countries altogether. And just think that, you know, Europe's Europe and that all came up together and it's all the same. They speak different languages in some countries, but everything else is the same. So it's fascinating that even I hadn't even considered that France may have even had like a a different developmental timeline for the profession um, compared Mm -hmm. to, say, the UK or, you know, other areas in Europe. Very, very different and a very, very different health system that they're working in and um, trying to influence as well and and I think you know that that's the beauty sort of like we'll get to see that through some of the um, congress program as well but you know it's one of the keynote sessions is focusing on occupational therapy in France because it's you know where we are and there's so much to learn because it is it is very very different it's very different to what I'm used to in the UK and a lot to learn and we've got you know, other international sort of um, keynote speakers to give us that more broader aspect around that. Um, but I think that opportunity to come together and be able to ask questions. And and I think that's, yes, WFOT Congress is always a large Congress, but mm. it's actually also quite intimate. Yep. There's always lots of opportunities to have those small conversations. And our keynote speakers are always there for the Congress. They're going to be there in coffee. they there's always that opportunity to have a conversation with people. Yeah. Uh, speaking earlier about like projects and stuff that have started, like I know there'll be a number of people listening to this this podcast now that will have probably discovered this podcast through some of the 4OT groups. And I know that the the ladies that started that 4OT network on Facebook, mm-hmm. that, that whole thing started from the Congress in Chile. Uh, yeah. And, you know, they're from all corners or at the time were from all corners of the globe and came together, started this project, which uh, like I got involved with that a couple of years into it. And but that's the kind of sort of 
thing. I mean, I think 4OT's got like 30,000 members or something in it now, but that's the kind of project that started from just coffee and catching up and meeting new people at a WFOT Congress. Yeah. So it's not always it's not always just the research side of it I guess is like there's 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 something for you know the academically minded as well as uh, the probably more practically minded OTs there's something for everyone at, at these events. Absolutely and I think again you were saying the difference between national and international you know the the program is you know very well evaluated you know we have a strong system of um, reviewing abstracts that submitted you know so you know congratulations to everybody that's had their abstract submitted because there was a lot of competition again this congress but we are different in that it's not just research focused mm. there are so many practice um and education sort of things there and real practice sort of things of day-to-day practice within occupational therapy um all the things that probably brought us into the profession to start with. Yep. One query I've I've had myself and I've heard from another people, other people sort of I guess one sort of concern around say a WFOT conference compared to a national conference is, is how uh people might manage with the language barrier. How does how does that generally work within the the congress? Again, I think that's part of the beauty of it as well. You see lots of hands flying around in conversations and conversations becoming quite animated as people try to get their points across. Um, I think as occupational therapists, we're good communicators, so we tend to enjoy that as well. Um, within the Congress programme, the we, it, it's predominantly English, but within France, we, we do the translation into sort of like the predominant local language so there will be French yep. translations we are also looking into other translation um things as well because you know again with the pandemic over two years some of that's become more accessible yeah the difficulty always is cost yeah translation is extremely expensive um um but there are more online translation tools now i think we have to recognize that online translation tools are brilliant but they're not perfect yeah and especially when it comes to something like occupational therapy because we have our own professional language and our own professional intent sometimes that yeah. isn't always picked up by um electronic translations or, e- yeah. or even translation full star yeah um so whilst we we are working very hard to make it accessible with various translation options i guess i do ask people that they're realistic in that yeah. there are limitations yeah. and i guess that's one of the benefits too of being able to attend in person is that if you're able to find a particular presentation or topic that you may not be able to get a, a, a very accurate translation on, but it's something that interests you, you can find the, the speaker in person and, and try and have that conversation. And, and same as we would do in practice if you're working with someone that yeah. spoke a different language, like you find ways of doing it. You know, there might be someone with you that can translate for you, etc. So, Absolutely. And I think actually some of my Congress discussions have been more enriched by those 
um, language conversations because the different use of words mm. in different languages. And, oh, you described it this way, and I didn't quite fully understand it because for us in my culture that would mean this, but you seem to be implying something else. And suddenly, the world's opened up, and you've you've gone into a totally different path of what you were originally thinking about. So, I think absolutely that those conversations and exploring language is really really important and i think yeah like you said it just adds to the the diversity and the experience that you can really only get from a wfot congress compared to say a national one where you would assume in most countries the dominant language of the country is going to be that at your at a national level conference whereas yeah a lot more diversity at a, a wfot congress yeah Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the other thing with WFOT, you know, many congresses will talk about being international congresses, but mm. generally that means that they're based in a country and the vast majority of their delegates are from that country because it's aimed at that country. And then they open it up to international delegates mm. and you might get a hundred or so from different places depending on the size the difference with a wfot congress okay we're based in france but actually it's a wfot congress so mm. it is fully international there is no one culture there is no one country that that congress is working around it is working around a fully international sort of delegate base yeah i remember many many moons ago presenting at an international mental health nurses conference and then this is on the gold coast in queensland and australia and then realized that it was in the same place every two years <laughs> like it didn't move <laughs> the next one was on the gold coast the one after that was on the gold coast i'm like oh, okay so it's not really international is it i guess you can come if you're from overseas yeah. but other than that it was just mostly australian ot's and australian nurses and australian other like other allied health professions it was a very odd realization that I hadn't really come across up until that point. But yeah, you, you're right. It's the WFOT Congress is WFOT and it's, it travels, it moves. Yeah. And I think that, that again, you know, when we're looking at coming to Paris and the logistics of it, I can understand people's anxiety over travel, certainly with, mm. you know, the last couple of years. But we've done a lot of work and, you know, our Congress organizing teams are, are working really hard looking at that recognizing that the you know people coming to our congress will be you know from many different countries and what that actually means you know with vaccinations with access what are covid rules and things like that so i do sort of encourage people to keep looking at the website look for those updates um and you know we're trying to make that as smooth as possible and try not to guess too far into the future yeah but it, it does feel now that, you know, right now does feel the right time to come together in person. Definitely. And I, I, I'm going to assume that similar to Australia, like the organizing committee for a WFAT Congress is also all volunteers, same as the, the rest of the, the organization. Um, so, yeah, and yeah, like you said, especially this current uh, climate in the world, it's almost like an added workload for those people. So kudos to them. Yeah, no, we've, we've got the scientific programs, volunteers, um, and then different groups, the French Association, um, 
are looking at social programs as well because let's not forget you know congress is about coming together and learning but as we've always talked it's those connections so there will be congress parties as well also before congress there's education day so education day is a dedicated day for educators to come together and discuss very pertinent issues around education now and looking into the future we've got a group of um, volunteers developing that program at the moment and there'll also be pre-congress workshops as well to be able to look at some some topics in more detail so there's the four-day congress but there's also lots of things happening outside of that program as well and from talking with other people if it does sound like the the social aspect of a wfot congress is a, a, a lot more ex- extensive than any national like con- uh, conference I've ever been to it does seem to be more of a, a priority and I guess you're you're traveling overseas it's kind of a big deal so you want to make the most of it as well yeah I think you know th- there will be um there'll be the official sort of like special programs mm-hmm. um but also like we said is you meet people and the amount of people that you meet and then say oh well you know we're going out for dinner tonight or should we go for coffee and there's always something and I think we're we're very aware as occupational therapists so if we see people on their own as well they're not on their own for very long and um, you get to make you get to make new colleagues but you get to meet new friends as well fantastic uh i'm just having a look so the website if people wanted to go and check out the program uh and see what what might be in of interest and uh, interest is wfot congress 2022.org uh and i'm assuming that's for registration everything all in that site yep there's registration there there's how to donate to the congress grants program if you want to support occupational therapists from low middle income countries there's the program on there at the moment there's some ideas for what to do in Paris and we'll keep adding to that there's early bird registration um, and the the program I think is really exciting as well because like we've already talked about that diversity of new graduates experienced therapists the diversity from around the globe but there's also some symposium sessions where we'll be able to explore topics in some more depth and there will be some WFOT-led sessions, so learning a little bit more about what WFOT is actually doing and how people can get involved in some of that work as well. Excellent. So if you're considering going, Early Bird is up until the 9th of May 2022. So, Hi, everyone. Post-processing Brock here. Just a quick note to say that since we recorded this episode, WFOT have extended the early bird till June 23rd. So everything else still stays exactly the same, is all accurate, but you now have until June 23rd to get that early bird price and sign up for the Congress. Let's get back to the episode. Get on that and, and uh, yeah, save yourself a little bit of coin as well, which is awesome. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming and having a chat. It's, it's been fantastic. I've really very much enjoyed it. It's been great. My, my first podcast. Your first podcast too. Yeah. <laughs> wow. New go. opportunities, you see. See, that you. if anything, if you can take anything from your story, it's that you just jump on these opportunities when they come up. So 
I'm glad I could present another one that you haven't had the uh, pleasure of doing up until now. No, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.